All right. I'm in Las Vegas. Penn Gillette's going to join me for an incredible conversation. Don't worry. We'll get to some Oscar thoughts that uh, you can find a little later on today. But that'll be coming. Uh, first, it's uh, Penn Gillette backstage in the green room for Jimmy Kimmel's Comedy Club. We'll do that right after this. From the green room at Jimmy Kimmel's Comedy Club in Las Vegas, this is The Adam Carolla Show. Adam's guest today, Penn Gillette. Plus, we'll do some news stories with Chris Loxamana. And now, the opposite of Teller, Adam Carolla. Yeah, get it on. Got to get on the church thing on Monday. Get it on. And I'm backstage in the green room at uh, Jimmy Kimmel's Club. In Las Vegas, we have a guest, one of my favorite people, Penn Gillette, is sitting in with us. Good to see you, Penn. Very good to see you, Adam. And it's nice that this room is packed. Yeah. Absolutely packed at Jimmy Kimmel's here. It absolutely is packed. It's a beautiful venue. I know uh, Penn has uh, got much to talk about. Uh, one is uh, Penn and Teller live at the Rio. Longest running show in Vegas? No, 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 no. no. Longest running show in the history of Vegas. In the history of Vegas. It's very important Vegas. because that way we kick Sinatra's ass. How many years? We have been in the same location for 21 years. 21, 21 years. 21 years banging out shows in Las Vegas, Nevada, which I, I never crossed my mind I would end up here. No, I mean, given your start, where you come from, your early life, your early attitude and yeah. sort of... Las Vegas was the antithesis of who you were when you were 23. It would have been a punchline. When I moved here, it was the antithesis, yeah. Right. You know who totally changed my mind, though, was Dean Martin. Mm -hmm. You know, I came out here in about 86. We were off-Broadway. Everybody was blowing us. You know, we were the smart guys off-Broadway and Broadway. And I took a break with a couple of my friends to come to Vegas and go to the Grand Canyon. Now, you know I'm a non-drinker. I don't gamble. Nothing interested me about Vegas. And we're going to go to the Grand Canyon and, you know, hang around with a couple of friends. You know, leather jackets and full Ramones shit then. Mm -hmm. And uh, ironically, we bought tickets to see Dean Martin. Won't that be just the stupidest thing in the world? We'll go see Dean Martin. Right. You know, and uh, there was no respect whatsoever. I barely respected Sinatra. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I get it. Just to jump in, it's kind of sad, like what we do with that generation mm-hmm. that's ahead of us. Like we made fun of Elvis. Mm-hmm. There were people in 1977, somebody said, let's go see Elvis or like that fat old washed up. That's right. your dad's right. band. Let's go see Peter, Paul and Mary. Yeah. <laughs> There's somebody who nobody cares that you would have seen. I, I felt the same way with Siegfried and Roy. Yeah. I was here doing Crank Anchors in like, I don't know, 07. I said, let's go see Siegfried and Roy. And everyone said, are you kidding me? Come on, that's sappy crap. But we're punished. We're punished by having the same thing done to us. Right. Right, it comes around. It comes around. And and you can never, you know, Pete Townsend can never explain when he's talking to the new generation. No, 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 no. We actually have shit to say still. Right. They're never going to listen to that. And, and... They're talented. That's why we know who they are. Exactly. The reason you know who Celine Dion is is because she's talented. She can do shit. Right. So you're here. You decide to go see Dean Martin is almost a goof. Yeah, it's a goof. It's absolutely a goof. Leather jackets, you know, Ramones T-shirts, 
torn jeans. We're going to sit in a booth at the, you know, because I was, I, I had enough juice to have a nice booth. We're, 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 we, I, 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 what I don't, year is this? Uh, this would be 85, 86. Mm-hmm. I don't need to tell you this, but we had no intention of being disrespectful or impolite. I'm right. talking about what was in our hearts, not right. we're going to heckle. <laughs> right, right. But I, I shouldn't need to tell you that, but I want to make sure anybody get confused. So we sit there, and Dean Martin comes out, and it was exactly the Ramones. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what I mean. The Ramones, when you go see the, and I used to see the Ramones a lot, and they were buddies of mine. You'd go see the Ramones, and they'd get to like the fourth song, and you'd say, well, they can't do another song in E at this tempo. They just can't do that. they mm-hmm. got to change it up. There's going to be a guitar solo. There's got to be a ballad. It's got to change up. And then it doesn't. And that 20 minutes after the first four songs is kind of excruciating because you go, really? This is going to be all night? Mm-hmm. And then it clicks into a performance art type thing where you go, yes, they are going to go faster and louder all the way through and then end. And you go out there and Dino uh, was just relaxed and slow, and quiet, and you said, well, he's not going to do that the whole time. He's going to punch it up at some point. And then, like, 40 minutes in, you're going, I've never seen anything like this. He's going to be that relaxed the whole time. And Dean Martin was a, um, you know, was a sociopath. Never cried, didn't care about anybody. And so I've never seen anyone, and I mean anyone, with less fear on stage. He hmm. did not give a fuck. There was somebody that um, that yelled out something was disruptive. I just remember the wackiest way to deal with a heckler I've ever seen in my life. He turned and looked at him, and of course they shut up immediately. Mm-hmm. And D went, oh, yeah. "You don't have to shut up. You don't have to be quiet. Uh, you know, um, Sinatra, but he's got to be quiet and respectful." I don't care what you do during my show. You can park cars during my show. I don't care. And the big swing and dick of that, it's a whole other level from the put down of, you know what I mean? It's just saying to someone you're completely impotent. You right. have no power over me whatsoever. There's nothing there to be disruptive with, right? Yeah, I mean, it's basically the schoolyard version of, you know, if if the boy's tugging on the girl's pigtails. Yeah. Well, he probably likes her, or at least knows yeah. who she is. The greatest insult on a schoolyard is who? Yeah. I, I don't know that guy. Yeah. Yeah. He's in your science class. Yeah. I, I don't know who you're talking about. Like, if, if you, to the recipient, the worst thing you can say in show business is not Penn Jillette, I hate that guy. It's who? Yeah. Right? That's, that that's a slap in the face. Yeah. And that was what sort of Dean yeah, was doing up on stage. And it was just, it was just incredible. And then, a guy who just died, I think, uh, a year ago, maybe tomorrow, Joel Fishman, who was uh, who was a promoter in Atlantic City. He came to us, uh, promoter Booker in Atlantic City. He came to us when we were off Broadway, and he said, "I want you to play Atlantic City." And we said, "We're not going to play Atlantic City." Did you read the New Yorker recently? Did right. you read the New York Times? Yeah, we're you're not, cool. You're we're hit. not Atlantic City kind of guys. Did you know that last right. night at our show, Iggy Pop and Andy Warhol were both there? Right. I don't think we're going to play Atlantic City. And he said, "I'll make a deal with you. You come to Atlantic City, you do the smartest stuff. You try to bomb. You do the quiet stuff, the long monologue stuff, and uh, if you don't like it." 
I'll pay you the whole week and you can leave after two shows. Wow. And we said, well, we're not going to play in Atlantic City. No, he said, you're going to find out it's the same people. I don't mean the same kind of people. I mean actually the same people. Mm-hmm. And I went, and Teller went, a week. And if we don't like it, we're just going to split. And uh, he said, you know, and I'll have, uh, I'll have uh, you open for the Temptations. So we'll have a, just a random Vegas crowd. You mm-hmm. can see how you like it. And we went out there. We were real assholes about it. I mean, we picked material that was much, much too uh, obtuse yeah, for yeah. the off-Broadway crowd, let alone Vegas. We went there, and we just loved it. Really? It was a really nice audience, really good. And then so we started adding Atlantic City. And, of course, the money was really good. What? Back to uh, Dean Martin mm-hmm. and you and your uh, band of Ramonians. When the show was over, you walked away from it with a thought. Mm-hmm. Did the rest of the yes. group have that, yeah. and did they admit it out loud? All three of us just went, uh, was, was that really good? Right. And the other one said, I think it was one of the best things I've ever seen. Wow. And then the other one was like, it's really out. It's really avant-garde. It's, it's crazy. And I went, yeah, he just doesn't give a fuck, and he sings perfectly. I mean, that's the other thing. It was just like, I've got the goods, mm-hmm. and here I am. And, you know, there's two ways to do performing, I mean, to be really gross about it. You either have to care so desperately what the audience thinks of you. Uh, Don Rickles is an example of that. Celine Dion is an example of that. You know, Desperately, if you do not approve of me, I will die right here on stage, literally. Mm-hmm. And the other way is not to give a fuck. Mm-hmm. And it seems like if you're in the middle yeah. and try to do one or the other, they will destroy you. I've always had this metaphor. Everyone listening is tired of it, but Pennison, <laughs> he's the only one I'm talking to right now. I, I feel this way uh, politically. I feel this way from a performance standpoint, as you just said. I've always said... You either have to be on the beach, away from the waves, or out beyond the breakwater, floating in the calm. It's the middle yeah. where you just get pum- you get pummeled. Yeah. And it, there's, it's sort of a universal thing of trying <laughs> to keep everyone happy, <laughs> or trying to ride both sides of the aisle politically, like trying to navigate right down the middle. That's where, where you just get pummeled. Yeah. And I, I completely agree from a performance standpoint, because there's... Comedians do that, too. Some hit the stage hard, and they're riding that unicycle, and they're burning those calories. And then the others that just don't even want to be there, or at least that's their persona. Yeah, you can be... You can, you can and, be but ca- toggling back and forth can't... You can be you Carrot pummeled. Top, or you right. can be Stephen Wright. <laughs> right. So for you, out, I have so many questions to ask you, because every time I know I'm going to speak to you, I'm like, oh, I know... I got this, I got that, I got the other questions for him. So you at least, the seed was planted in your head that there that there was, an, that Vegas actually was kind of punk and alternative in its own yeah, fashion. Yeah, and it kind of wasn't then. Because I, I, I hasten to add, every other show we saw was exactly as sucky as you'd expect from Vegas. Right. There are people doing George Burns impersonations, you know. Right, there are right. people doing... Um, uh, I, and, I, and I'm not using this the way uh, you might use it in the woke sense, but truly 
homophobic things, mm-hmm. truly racist things. Right. I mean, not funny, just ugh. And uh, so I hated Vegas for all those reasons. And then the same guy, Joel Fishman, moves from uh, from Atlantic City out to Vegas and says, okay, guys, we're going to play Vegas. Mm-hmm. And we went, well, Atlantic City was okay. It's closer to New York. Right. It's all the deals. No, no, we're going to do it. We're going to do Vegas. And he put us in the fucking celebrity room at uh, at Bally's, which is where Sinatra, Willie Nelson, George Carlin, mm-hmm. all at that time were playing, right? Everybody mm-hmm. did. And um, and we went, I, I, don't, I don't know if we can do that. And everybody in the town of Vegas was like, oh, there's there's Joel losing his job. He's bringing Penn and Teller to Vegas. And, you know, I saw that on the marquee, that giant, you know, our names, you know, whatever they were, 40 feet tall mm-hmm. and uh, mind-blowing. And we got there, and I will tell you, and there's a cheat on this. Before, before you bust me, there's a cheat. We have the record for the most tickets sold in the celebrity room in history. That means better than Sinatra, better than Dean Martin, better than Liza Minnelli. And the reason is we had no comps. Oh, we right. had no friends. We had not right. one, right. Yeah. not friends. So we are the only ones to have ever sold right. every single seat, because and nobody it, in the casino wanted to see us. So we yeah. sold every single yeah, seat. If Sinatra blows into town. There's got to be 150 comps sure. for all the friends and coming over from their show, and everyone who works at the casino and, and the high rollers, all the high rollers. Uh, you want to come well. in from China see Sinatra? Sure, right. Yeah. So, what is your schedule like? Your daily? Well, now schedule? it's now it's incredibly easy. We're just doing Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then we go out and do. Uh, very often, we change that to Monday, Tuesday, and go out and do a Thursday, Friday gig on the road. And I know you get out before the show because I've seen it and play the stand-up bass. Are you still yeah, doing play, that? I play the upright, and I, I'm pretty proud of this. And I know no one else cares, but um, just. About two months ago, I recorded a trio record with real jazz people. Jeff Hamilton, Mike Jones. Jeff Hamilton, uh, I was going to say one of the best jazz drummers, but I said that in front of him once. Mm-hmm. And Jeff Hamilton said, okay, name two others as good as me. Right. And I said, okay. And he said, stop saying one of the best. So mm-hmm. the best jazz drummer, Je- Jeff Hamilton. And I went in there. You know, in music, I guess in any field, uh, you've got two goals. Goal number one, don't be noticed. Goal number two, be noticed. <laughs> right. But you right. can't do them in the other order. <clears throat> right. And right. I went into a studio with my upright bass and no gags, no Penn and Teller show coming up, no nothing. I played upright bass. And well, I, I think everybody I know says I was okay. Now, you don't buy this record and go, you got to hear this trio record because the bass player is the best you've ever heard. You still buy it for the piano player and for the drummer, but there's no moment of the record during my solos or anything where you go, oof, he can't play. And I can't tell you how proud I was of that because I've been working for 20 years to learn to play the upright bass. And I finally got, and and the record has a great name too, which is, are you sure you three guys know what you're doing? Which, as you know, is a Stooges reference. Did um, how does the stand-up bass, which my dad played? Oh, really? And I have a very distinct memory of when I was. He kept it at my grandparents' house. I, I don't even know what the story was. The family was kind of a mess, but 
I remember sleeping at my grandparents' house in my grandfather's office, like on the sofa one night, and I would look, and in the corner, my dad had this stand-up bass, and it's sack, and it's like sort of brown uh, sack, yeah, sort of zipped up, and leaned against the wall, and I I was nine, you know, and I would I, I woke up at two in the morning, I saw it, and I envisioned a large, heavy-set woman of color, like just standing there, because of the way the hips yeah. look and the curves look um are you gonna lead up to ask me if i fucked my base yes was that's where i was heading <laughs> with this well we can cut to the chase i can just say yes when you when you play at the top of your show you are a very good bass player for magician but when you go into the studio you're just a bass player yeah, at that point that's and that's what you have to deal with does the stand-up bass translate to the electric well, bass guitar they are can the, you play that this is not the, as good but competently they're they the same tuning mm-hmm. uh but the uh the, the electric bass is fretted and right. the the upright bass is uh, is is not so your intonation is incredibly important on the upright bass and just putting your fingers kind of in the right place is all that matters in the electric bass and here's the thing that's so uh kind of counterintuitive if you play electric bass like a punk, right, uh, you don't hurt your fingers. You don't hurt anything. Mm-hmm. When you play like mellow jazz on an upright bass, you know, I can't use my fingers on an iPhone because there's no finger there. Right. Uh, it's just, uh, it's all callous like deep right, there. Right, And uh, in order to make the sound, you've got to really move shit. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny. So now if I play an electric bass, which I can play, I just am ripping it apart because mm-hmm. I'm putting so much more force into it. And I just also I just also bought a a really really nice bass. As a matter of fact, you've heard this bass before because in all the Star Wars soundtracks, on pretty much every soundtrack, the guy who owned it before me that you heard an upright bass was playing it. He was the major guy. He was a session guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so back to the schedule. What is the schedule like for you on, I mean, a, on a working day? On a working day, uh, I get up about nine, mm-hmm. uh, exercise, meditate, all that shit, shit you got to do. Write my journal like a little girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, then I do about an hour to two hours, an hour to an hour and a half of studying Spanish. Mm-hmm. And because uh, I'm doing a show in Spain, all in Spanish in oh. June. And, uh, and then... Um, I, uh, Why, so Teller is too, but he doesn't. No, no. Oh, Just but me. he wouldn't need to learn Spanish no, anyway. And then uh, usually, you know, my children, this is just about over, but my children, I'm still picking them up from school about mm-hmm. 2.30. I try to spend time with my children, which as you know with teenagers is impossible. Yeah. There's nothing they want to do with you. No. And then I have my uh, my supper about 5.30, mm-hmm. drive in about 6.30. Uh, we no longer, because of the plague, we stopped doing the meet and greets afterwards. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we're going to start that up or not, but it cuts down by yeah. 45 minutes or an hour, how long mm-hmm. the shows take. And I go backstage, and if there's someone who's come see the show, hang out with them a little bit, and then uh, drive home and start up again. Did uh, I, I was trying to figure out your diet from way back when, mm-hmm. when you lost 100-plus pounds. Yeah, about 120. 120 pounds. And... I was trying to recite it to Chris and maybe Mike, which is you were telling me, I believe you take one vegetable or one 
item and you simply eat well, that, that for was an for extended the, period No, no, that was just the big change. That was, that was just when they wanted to get myself in a different head. I did two weeks of just potatoes. Two weeks of just potatoes. And what that does is it just knocks you out of the standard American diet. It right. just makes you think different. It's not, it's yes. not healthy to right. do that for a month. But no. for two weeks, it just makes you – all the advertising looks different. You just right. go, Jesus, everybody's eating all the time. Yes. And it also teaches you what real hunger is because yes. you go, I don't feel like eating a potato. Right. And then like three hours later, you go, I want to eat a potato. And that's what hunger is. See, if, yes. you, if you have a craving for a certain food, you're not hungry. Right. If you'll eat anything, you're hungry. And you right. want to teach all that stuff. So that's just like two weeks of like – just turn the switch. Just rebooting. Just yeah, rebooting. no, I, uh, that's, and then I, I surmise that because people go, how are you going to lose weight eating potatoes? It's like you're, you're not. You're, you're getting dominion mm-hmm. over yourself. And it takes about, about three months uh, mm-hmm. for most people to establish a habit. Yeah. So, to, so you've got to eat really carefully for three months or if you're going to exercise or do anything – the thing is people think you can establish a habit in two or three weeks, and you simply can't. Mm-hmm. You've got to just brute force it for three months. You know, there's this uh, expression, we make our habits and our habits make us. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really true. You can kind of control who you – I'm kind of a nut about, uh, about habits because if you can get a habit going, you can do anything. So my habit to practice the bass, my habit to learn Spanish, you can do – You know. Yeah, I, I know. I've – been thinking about this a lot because when we were younger, we weren't fat because we couldn't be fat because places were closed on Sunday. We didn't have <laughs> Grubhub. We had no money. Right. You know, I was incapable of being fat when I was 27 because I taught boxing, I was poor, and I was a carpenter. How would I possibly get fat given those three and, and things? The, I had no money. I couldn't go through the drive through at in and out. I was literally on my feet. You also feet don't all day. have, you when you're a carpenter, just like you're not standing there with food around you. I mean, how many meetings, and this is less true now, but talk about even 10, 15 years ago. How many meetings do you go in in Hollywood? It's 11 in the morning, and they have a full spread with muffins and everything. And you go, who is hungry here? No, I, that's that's that's. And my as a point. carpenter, you don't show up, and they don't say, "Oh, here's a spread here while you're working." No, we got we got donuts, we got no, bagels. You, you need some fruit? What do you need? We have Coke here. What do you want? They don't even. I mean, I, I oftentimes think about this as it pertains to water. Everyone's filling up the bottle and bringing their tote mug and walking up and down the street with their big, you know, one yeah. liter, whatever. We just show up seven in the morning. You just start working. Nobody had any containers of water. It would have been a canteen back then, I guess, or <laughs> Boda bag or something. Everyone just worked out in the sun, San Fernando Valley, up on their feet, up on the roof. Maybe you'd get a suck off the hose at yeah. some point, but the water was warm and it tasted like vulcanized rubber. So it like, wasn't that <laughs> Boy, when you say that, it brings it so to mind. Does it? Drinking water out of a hose, yes. you just know. The whole life, you know that. Yes, yes. It is something that our kids will never experience. <laughs> but if you say it to anyone of our generation, you immediately snap back. And then you would just work 
And then five hours in, there'd be lunch, yeah. and someone would go on a run, and you'd eat a burrito, and then you'd just go back to yeah. work. That There was no grazing. There was no snacking. I, I I cannot tell you all the people I talk to who go like, yeah, I'm hungry. I go, you cannot possibly be hungry. I've been with you all day. You ate a breakfast burrito an hour and 20 minutes ago. You ate 2,700 calories. You're not hungry. Yeah. You're bored, and or you you're go, reflexive. Yeah. And if you're on a set of a movie... It's yes. incredible. It's they incredible. come into your trailer and say, what would you like? Have a breakfast burrito. We have hash browns. And then, like, you yeah. finish one take and someone runs to you with a bottle of water. Like, it, you, when you're on a film set. In inside air conditioned. You, it, in, if, you're doing, if you're on a film set, uh, you have to drink more water and eat than if you were climbing Everest. I, you know, the funny part about being on the set is when you go, I'm not going to hang around the craft service table. They take three tables. They spread them out. It's got trail mix. It's got granola bars. It's got the muffins. It's got the everything bagel. It's it's a giant carb explosion that mm -hmm. just goes down this table. So then when you're on the set, you go, well, stay away from that table. And at some point, you're talking to the director and you're having a little meeting and the craft service woman walks up because she made quesadillas. Yeah. <laughs> and you can smell them now. And she's passing the tray around. Yeah. And she's got mango smoothies, yeah. <laughs> too, like mini mango smoothies. And now you're standing and she's bumping you in yeah. the shoulder going, quesadilla, mango smoothie. And you're like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm a blot. Now I'm obliged yeah. because you brought the mountain to Muhammad. But I tried to escape <laughs> This carb landslide, but now you've shown up. They're knocking at the door. It's the weirdest thing. I've always said this about show business. The two things that will run you out of show business is getting fat and getting drunk, and all they do is try to force food on you. They give you <laughs> baskets filled with muffins when you yeah. know the show wraps, and then – they give you a bottle of scotch that's single malt. Like, what kind of message is this? The worst thing you could do is drink and or get fat. Those are those yeah. are the two things. That's all they do. That's yeah. all they push. Well, you know, uh, I have uh, I have always talked about never drinking, and you also know that they deliver baskets to me with wine. Oh, right, and, uh, right. all they the time. You know, care. because because that's the uh, that's the thing you do, and I often will get in at. 2 a.m. to a hotel. You know, we're, we're playing a gig the next night. Mm -hmm. Get at 2 a.m. I walk into my room, and there is bottles of liquor for right. me. And right. I just go, man, I mean, it's been my whole life, so the bottle of liquor means nothing to me. But I think, boy, the poor bastard right. who's really fighting with this. And it's 2 a.m., and he's overworked, and he can't sleep. Denzel Washington in flight. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, he's trying to walk past that minibar. Yeah. No, I I know it. It's it, it's but it's essentially me with the quesadillas. Like I, I said, yeah. please keep away, and they just keep pushing it yeah. at well, you. You never did the Drew Carey show, did you? No, no, his sitcom. His sitcom. No, I did not. That was uh, craft services gone wild. Mm. Uh, I. It was four rooms. He had a popcorn machine, full Baskin Robbins set up. He had, I've never seen so much food. There were like four people manning it, and yeah. you'd walk near it, and they had any kind of food you can think of. Geez, I'd like some uh, fried rice and maybe a tamale on the side, mm -hmm. and then some pistachio ice cream with hot fudge. Mm -hmm. And they'd go, done. 
you know, anything. And then the next week I did Friends. Mm. And backstage they had celery. Oh, really? And I said to the craft services person, wow, this is sure is different than the Drew Carey uh, uh, craft services. And she said, yep. And look at their cast. Right. And look at ours. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Not just Drew. All right. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Pendulette right after this. All right. Pendulette is, uh, still remains backstage here. Let me give a couple of plugs to Penn. Uh, the series, Penn and Teller, Fool Us, Season 9, airing on the CW. Which is actually Season 10, which makes me angry, but go ahead. Um also, uh, the game, You Lying Sacks, available at Walmart and Amazon. Yep. And is that the game where the proceeds are going to the charity? Me. Oh, you. Yeah. <laughs> what was the charity you were working with out here for uh, a I, I, number of years? I, I, I work a lot with Opportunity Village. That's and I still the do stuff for them, of. yeah. And, of course, the nightly show, which is Thursday, Friday, Saturday, yep. Sunday. Yeah. Uh, that's at the Rio. Obviously out there. Tickets at com. Um, I can't ask him myself, so I'll ask you. Uh, nobody knows anything about Teller. Uh, I got a chance to talk to him backstage at one of your shows for a while. Found him delightful. Uh, we know you're learning Spanish. You're meditating. You're journaling. You're playing the stand-up bass, upright bass. What's what's uh, Teller into? Well, this is this is kind of almost seems like a joke, <laughs> but for Teller, it's magic. <laughs> Oh, really? I mean, Teller is, uh, and I think it's really safe to say this now, and I believe, uh, I mean, no one could be more prejudiced about this, but I I believe, I'm agreed on on this, that he is uh, one of the best magic minds in the world now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Teller actually, um, actually sits around, you know, three or four hours a day and reads magic books. Really? I mean, phenomenal. And I'll also say, I think one of the, one of the most telling things about Teller, you know, there's a lot of, not a lot of people, there's a few people who have extensive magic libraries and they collect stuff like the, um, uh, you know, the discovery of witchcraft, which was in the 17th century. It's the oldest magic book. The first book that deals with magic is trickery, right? Mm-hmm. And these books, there's, you know, X number around and they're like, uh, you know, 100,000 bucks. Copperfield has three. You know, mm-hmm. and they collect books like that and original Houdini stuff. And Teller has some very expensive books, like you know, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollar books. But here's all you need to know about Teller: he writes in them. Really, <laughs> there's underlines, uh-huh. underlines that go. We could use this. Uh, this that says use your right hand, he actually means left. This is a typo. So if you go to Teller's Magic Library, which is extensive, you know, uh, and yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I went and saw um, Darwin's library, the actual library that that Darwin had in his Mm -hmm. home. They have the books there. A private collector has it. And you open those books, and Darwin's like underlining shit and writing Mm -hmm. in the book Mm -hmm. because Teller is not – collecting to bring people into his library and say, look at these books I have. He's collecting because he wants to read the goddamn stuff. And then Teller sorts through this shit, learns this shit, knows all this shit, and then comes in and says to me, "Um, I Xeroxed two pages that I want you to look at and be able to use. Mm -hmm. Now that's after he's read 700 
Right. You know, I've dug this out. This might be useful. We might change this. And Teller is talking to all the people that make props and know everything. You know, we do the show, Penn and Teller Fool Us, and several magicians have made the joke uh, kind of busting balls. But it's 100% true. They come out and go, you know, this show is not Fool Us. It's Fool Teller. Right. And I go, right. Uh, every season, uh, you know, uh, about 12% of the people fool us. Mm-hmm. And all the rest, Teller knows. And every year... Meaning you don't know how the trick was done. Out of the out of the 80 magicians that are on each season, there's two that I bust that Teller didn't know. Mm-hmm. And it's usually a math thing mm-hmm. or, a, or a computer thing that, uh, that Teller's not studying. But Teller, it's just like we watch this stuff and then I turn. I have a couple minutes where I have to hear what Teller has to say. And then formulate what I'm going to say in my jokes and stuff like that. Get it all together. But I'm just doing, I mean, when they turn our mics off, the two of us are conferring. And it looks like the two great minds in magic are discussing this. What's being said, if you hear the mic, is what they do, Teller. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and Teller's going, ah, there was a thing in 1948 in a book that came out of Scotland Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of the actual guy's name, but it's a uh, there was there was a billet switch early on, and then I believe he's running it with a foot pedal. Is uh, <laughs> where are we in the state of magic? I always say I liken it to heavyweight boxing. Right yeah. now, who's the heavyweight boxing champ? Tyson Fury, I guess, named the top five. I don't really know all the guys back in the day. Mm-hmm. You could say Ali and Frazier and Holmes and you know Tyson and yeah. you know. And then there's then the mid or later '80s when there are a bunch of no names, no one's ever heard of. So it kind of has an ebb and a flow yeah. to it. Magic was at its height in what what years really? Well, and then you know, where was it now? It's really. You know, you, you always want to – we were talking about generations, ju- judging other generations. And uh, if you look at the 20th century and you say 50 years from now, or let's just say, you know, uh, you know 21, um, uh, that century, who what is, the, what is the entertainer in the 20th century that will be remembered? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, like will it be Jolson? Will it be Elvis? Will it be the Beatles? Mm-hmm. And uh, those are the major those are the major contenders. Maybe Brando you throw in there or mm-hmm. something. And um, I think it's Houdini because mm-hmm. Houdini is in the dictionary, mm-hmm. which Elvis is not. Mm-hmm. You know, if you say he kind of Houdinied, they know uh-huh. they know he right, disappeared. Right. And I will do this challenge to you, which I think is a really nice gadonk and a, a thought experiment. If you stand on the corner. Of um, of Flamingo in Las Vegas Boulevard, and you walk out to that corner, and you say to um, several people, say say you say to ten people, uh, name a magician. Now, if you look to your right, there is a picture of me three hundred feet tall mm-hmm. with Teller next to me, and it says Penn and Teller. If you turn your head the other way, there's a huge building covered with David Copperfield. Mm-hmm. If you look down the street, you see Shin Lim, mm-hmm. you see Piff the Magic Dragon, mm-hmm. and you see David Blaine, mm-hmm. and you see Matt Franco. Mm-hmm. Now you can see, I mean you can see, 
every one of those marquees where you're standing. And I will tell you, six out of the ten people will say, Houdini. Right. Um, I think for the 20th century, and because Houdini, and people don't get this now, um, in, in 1910, 1915, Houdini was not the most famous magician. Okay? He was the most famous person. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the most famous entertainer, mm-hmm. and he was in movies. He was he was he was everything, and uh, so there was the time for Houdini. And then after Houdini, because Houdini died in his forties, um, you had Thurston and Blackstone and all those guys. Magic was really popular, and the reason is that magic is a live art form. Mm-hmm. And this is odd from the person who's doing the tenth season of Fool Us, but. It's not something you can watch on TV. You've got to be in the room seeing it live. Yeah, Blackstone, I think, well, used, Blackstone to sell, Jr. Yeah. used to sell kits. Yeah. Uh, like on 70s TV, you could mm-hmm. buy a whole magic kit. You can buy a Penn & Teller magic kit. Oh, sorry. Uh, I didn't <laughs> see that on the TV. But yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a good point. So, and, and I want to ask about Shin Lim because I see his yeah. billboards everywhere. Well, I just put him in a movie. Oh, he did. I just put him in the movie. His billboards annoy me, <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Hey, haircut? No, it's the flinging of the car. Yeah, yeah. Because as I said to someone yesterday, we don't know if we caught those cars. <laughs> He's just throwing car. I could do that. You could get a picture of me with a deck of cards spraying them at my open hand. It's, it's, as long as you didn't take a second picture where they're all over the fucking floor, then I would look like I knew what I was doing, too. It's worse than that, Adam. He's not springing any cards. He's holding his hands like this. Oh, they, 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 add, oh, they added the cards. <laughs> but Shin is very good. He is. Is, is he a card guy? Is he uh, a, he's, a, he's a close-up guy, which is why... Guy. His magic show is very strange because mm-hmm. his magic show, you go into a room with other people and you watch TV. Oh, so he has cameras yeah, tight yeah, yeah, on yeah. and then up on the jumbo yeah. Tron. Yeah. So you can see and that he kind of hand just, work. He just cannot not sell tickets. Really? People love going to see Shin Lim. And he's got this guy, Colin Cloud, with him who's a mentalist. Mm-hmm. Who's very good and very charming, and he does he does a really really nice show. Shin is very funny because Shin is um, very quiet, very shy, and just the audience goes wild. He just kind of comes out and I'll, I'll do this trick for you, you know, mm-hmm. not not big jokes, not big anything. But he's got really really good hands, and he also, uh, and I don't want to go into this more, be disrespectful to him, but he also came up with a way of thinking about close up magic. That mm-hmm. other people really hadn't. And like everything that's invented, there were probably 20 people working on it. Right. But he's the first one that got it nailed and moved it to uh, uh, America's Got Talent. So where are we now in this, the state of magic, if this was heavyweights? Well, Vegas, Vegas is, for the past, because of Siegfried and Roy, mm-hmm. has been uh, the magic capital of the world. Mm-hmm. And... I believe the reason is, and I just said this, and I'm going to say it again in a slightly different way. Um, you wanted to see Elvis. Mm-hmm. You wanted to see him live. You wanted to see Sinatra live. But much of what's good about them, you can partake of electronically. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's, it's like seeing Elvis live, right. but you can see you can see video. You kind right. of want to see Seinfeld live, but mm-hmm. also there's mm-hmm. some electronics there that you can get. But magic. 
you cannot experience except live. So many of the people who come to Vegas uh, are seeing four live shows a year. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, you know, Skinner Tribute Band comes to town. You go mm-hmm. see that. Maybe, you know, their children, you know, their grandmother drags them to see cats or mm-hmm. on tour. But they see maybe four shows. So if they come to Vegas, they really want to see a magic show. Let's see the one thing we can't experience electronically. And therefore, there's a lot of people here. You know, the name in magic that is the most famous for the past, well, for my whole lifetime is David Copperfield. Mm-hmm. Even though he's two years younger than me, mm-hmm. he's been uh, very famous since he was, what, fucking 19? He was doing shows with Orson Welles. I mean, really? Yeah. And Copperfield. Live st- shows with Orson Welles? He had, he had, he had a thing he did. Uh, he did a video thing with Orson Welles that was after Orson Welles died. But I think he talked magic with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he did a thing with Gene Kelly. Wow. I mean, because he was famous so young. Mm-hmm. And so blindingly ambitious uh, that um, Copperfield has stories of that era that he shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Like you'd like you know, he's um, I think two years younger than me, three years younger than me, but in our generation. Yeah, and you're not going to tell me a story about when you met Gene Kelly. No, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, no. I mean, there's a weird. There is weird crossover sometimes, and I don't know why it just popped in my head, but, like, you see some of these movies like Viva Knievel, starring <laughs> Evil Knievel with um, Fred Astaire yeah, and Gene yeah. Kelly, and you're like, what is Evil Knievel? Yeah. And, and there is some generational, occasional catch an episode of Love Boat, <laughs> of like super young Tom Hanks. Yeah. And Agnes Moorhead on, mm-hmm. you know, acting across each other at the bar. Well, that's why and, the bacon number is so great. Right. You know. The, yes, yeah, seven degrees of bacon. But is, so I don't know that I know Copperfield. And then here's an interesting, uh, I don't know, question, challenge or something. You are a magician, but you make yourself very knowable in terms of we know your personality, mm-hmm. you have plenty of. Plenty of uh, appearances on TV, plenty of interviews like this one. We get to know who you are. Understand. Is there something with Copperfield where there's a sort of an enigmatic thing where we don't want to know? Actors used to do that. Like, I didn't know who Robert De Niro was mm -hmm. until about 10 minutes ago. Mm -hmm. Now I know who he is. And in a way, kind of screwed up a little the acting part for me. I think it was – there was recently an interview in the uh, Times with – I think it was Matt Damon uh-huh. who just said, if you know too much about me, uh, you've really hurt my chances of doing my job right. Yeah. You're, you're supposed to be lost in that. I feel the same way about strippers. She's <laughs> 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 got a child seat in the Jeep. Yeah. <laughs> Her old man's bouncing at the place. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, you're kind of ruining it for me. I like the runaway or the college student who's <laughs> trying to make ends meet. Yeah. yeah it, no, I, I get it. I mean, like I said... I, I was a fan of De Niro. I knew De Niro. I knew his work. That's all I knew. I pictured he was somewhere pacing and smoking all the time. Well, and then he starts showing up on The View, mm. and it kind of like screwed it up well, for me a, a little really, bit. There's a guy named David Greenberger who does a thing called The Duplex Planet where he interviews you know, people still older than us. And he's, he's a brilliant, brilliant artist in many ways, brilliant musician, everything. Uh, and David Greenberger said this thing that – 
I think is one of the most uh, profound things about Dylan. He said, uh, if you ask someone what it's like to go out to dinner with Letterman, who's a hardcore fan of Letterman, um, they'll be able to tell you. Now, they'll be wrong. That's the important part of this whole thing. They'll be wrong. If you – let me just make sure I got this right. If you talk to someone who goes out to dinner with David Letterman – No, if you say – if you're a Letterman freak. I'm a Letterman And I freak. say to you, you're going to go out to Letter, – we're going to go out to dinner, going to go mm-hmm. out to a nice Italian place on Friday with Letterman. What's it going to be like to sit there with them? Right. They have a scenario. Yes. And if you say that about Beyonce, they have a scenario. Right. They're wrong. They're completely right. wrong. But they think that. But they have a scenario. You say to a hardcore Dylan fan, what's it like to go out with, Dil- with Dylan, do you think? They go, I don't know. Right. And he's kept that up for 60 years. Right. For 60 years, Dylan has gone from uh, blonde on blonde to Nashville skyline. Mm-hmm. His voice changes completely. And we just go, huh, wonder what happened. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's never, ever, ever ever given a glimpse of who he is. Yeah. And yet his entire heart is poured out in the, you know, the the best writer of our of our lifetime. Right. So is Copperfield sort of that uh, way? Well, I, I well, I you know, Copperfield, I mean, he's not Copperfield's he's not a friend. Dylan, I don't want to be disrespectful. But what I mean but, is is the enigmatic part, the part where he doesn't that, that's sit what, down and that's what they're hoping. That's what they're hoping. Long-form podcast. That's what they're hoping for. Right. Um the real truth of it is and um it's that everyone except me started magic when they were 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And they were obsessed and they were thinking about the tricks. And if you want to talk about the psychological bedrock, mm-hmm. it's obviously someone that wants to have something over on their peers. Right. right? It's obviously uh, someone who's a little bit outside stuff. It's a masculine thing. It's a, I tricked you, ha, ha, ha. So yeah. You, you get that kind of person. And it started off with a sort of a, I'm going to take a woman, I'm going to saw her in yeah, half. Sure, sure. You know what I mean? There yeah. was a, uh, a lot of sort of misogynistic undertones. That the woman never speaks, we make her disappear. <laughs> <laughs> she comes back in something I, sexy. I don't think you then need, we saw her in half. I don't think you need to word, use the word undertones. You're right. I don't Those think it's overtones. subtext. That I think it's subtext. text. It's text. It's text. It's text. Um, and uh, I... Um, I'm only in magic because I met Teller, mm-hmm. and he was, you know, one of the most brilliant people I ever met and did magic that I actually liked. I hated magic because I've said many times a greasy guy in a tux with a lot of birds torturing women in front of Mylar to bad small thick white right. boy rip off Motown music. Right. That's all right. it was. And when you were watching, because you're old enough, you would watch like uh, the Hollywood Palace or mm-hmm. we were even old enough to watch Ed Sullivan. Yeah, the probably. magician. The magician was the one who got in the way of you seeing Led Zeppelin. Right? Why the fuck? I, bring out Zeppelin. What the fuck right. is that? But why has he got a dog and he's put it in a box? I want to see Zepp. Yeah. So for you, I mean, I don't know. Tell me if this translates or not. I, I'm real friendly with John Popper from Blues Traveler. Oh, I yeah, always, what a great guy. Love, I love that guy. But I, I always say the reason that guy's mastered the harmonica is because he had a lot of downtime as a sort of <laughs> overweight kid that was not yeah. in favor. You know, he wasn't the captain of the football team right. and he wasn't betting all the cheerleaders. And so instead he turned all that toward this discipline. 
And, you know, now we get John Popper. Yeah. You know, was there an element of that with you in Magic? Well, I, actually, I, I didn't really start Magic until I was uh, 20 and working with Teller. So that's kind of what I'm saying. But mm-hmm. I was worse than Magic. I was a juggler. Oh, worse, I was yeah. I was juggling uh, all the time. Because here's, here's my uh, – you're from Southern California. Yes. Okay, so you knew that show business was possible. Yes. You I'd weren't heard part of it. Of it. No. You'd heard of show business. I Yeah, I saw Robert Yurick in a Gelson's in Sherman Oaks yes. you know, in 1979. Yeah, you know. mind-blowing. He lived there somewhere. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was from Western Massachusetts, and I desperately wanted to be in show business. And so I thought <laughs> yeah. if I learned to juggle really well, there would be like an art talent scout. You know, knock on the door and go, right. you're a good juggler. Let's put you in show business. And I go, okay. That was really what I believed. How good this did is you get at juggling? Oh, fucking really good. Really now, good. juggling is fascinating. I mean, in one way. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to try to make that sentence make sense. But what's interesting to me is that juggling got so much better because of the internet. Now, we knew mm. the internet was going to be useful for getting fat and watching porn and mm-hmm. doing science. Right. If I had talked to you about the internet you know, at MIT in 1983 uh, and said, what's the internet going to bring to us? You wouldn't have said, we're going to get some really good jugglers. Right. That wouldn't be the first thing you'd say. No. And yet, we did that. So what I did as a juggler in 1972, 73, was uh, really good. I mean, in the top five. Really? But top now, five of? The world. The world. Now, it would be a nine-year-old in Missouri. Okay. That's the level. Yeah, of, so yeah. Let's, let's. So let's, I was really excited. <clears throat> well, let's liken it to this. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean it. If you saw what a guy was doing on a skateboard in 1972, it was a kick turn on a four-foot half ramp, right? Now you see nine-year-olds at the X Games getting big air. Yeah. And it's basically... They're orbiting Earth. Yes, because (laughs) you see the internet, you go, I can do this. It can be done. I always say... The four-minute mile had never been broken for, you know, 2,000 years, you know, since the Greeks or whatever. The the second, I think it was Roger Bannister, the second he broke it, it got broke three more times in the next two weeks. This happens, like, that's all it took. This happens in science in a fascinating way. Hmm. They would, uh, in math, and I, and I love this, uh, a guy would announce that he had solved a, a theorem. He had mm-hmm. solved a problem. Mm-hmm. And he would announce it was going to be at a math conference. Mm-hmm. And before he gave his paper at the math conference, three other people would beat him to the punch. Right. And they did a lot of research going, we've got to find out where the leaks are. Right. Was it a student working in there? Was it this? Was it that? And these are scientists. Yeah. And finally they said, no, no, there's no leak. The guy says, I figured this out. And the guy goes, oh, you can figure it out? Yeah. <laughs> That's no, all it, you need. I, it's like. Getting laid in high school, you yeah, get yeah. nothing. <laughs> you get laid, and then the the the, the clouds part, yeah. <laughs> and the pussy uh, remains. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back with more Pendulette. We'll get in some news as well, and we'll do all that right after this. Uh, 
All right, more Penn Gillette in the green room at uh, Jimmy Kimmel's stand-up Where it's packed. It is packed. Um, Still getting over the devastation of Shin Lim's cards being added (laughs) using Photoshop. Well, I don't know exactly what program they used. I'm not... uh... Yeah, he's spraying those cards. So, um, I mean, Adam, you can see the faces on the cards. I just want to believe so badly. What photographic process are you doing that lays those cards out beautifully? You're right. You're right. He might. I I want to take a little bit back to the heartbreak. Mm. He might have actually been sprinkling cards. They might. He could have been doing that. And then they They, put the faces on. They just helped it out. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to clean it up. Card filter. So (laughs) I was. I you know I had a moment in time where I decided to be a juggler as well. Did you? I did because I was always coordinated. It was good hand-eye stuff. And my buddy Philip Welford was a juggler who was just a great friend. And he ended up in Branson. And then he got this early onset dementia. And it's very sad. And he died, you know, fairly young. And there's his life. There's his life. About 12 (laughs) years ago. But um, he was a good friend of mine. And he rode the unicycle Mm -hmm. and juggled in his act. And I could already ride the unicycle. It's a great thing. It's like I could ride the unicycle. You're doing comedy and juggling. He's working cruise ships. He's making money. He's doing commercials. I was like, if he could just teach me. And he tried for a few days. And I realized I just, I was sort of, I was sort of like, I don't think I'm going to ever get good enough at this. I I should work harder on just getting better at comedy Mm -hmm. versus burn the calories trying to juggle. It is also insane, but it's sort of like what you were talking about, which is this is in the, you know, late 80s, very early 90s. I still thought juggling and riding a unicycle was a sort of viable path to show business. Here's the thing. Uh, Magicians, uh, uh, comics, comics fucking hate jugglers because Mm. if you get – this is the thing that's amazing – if you get a solid 12 minutes of a juggling routine, mm-hmm. I mean a good solid 12, I mean funny and entertaining, everybody likes it, with that 12, you will work the rest of your life. Yes. You'll, make, you, you'll never get rich. You'll right. make a good living, can support a family. You'll be in six figures. You really will. I mean that's good money. And you'll go on cruise ships. You'll do corporate shows. You'll do a little variety. You know, But a comic – we know a few guys, you know, there's, there's probably a hundred guys who are able to stay at a certain level and always work. But pretty much, pretty much you either break into a sitcom or you get your own gig. The people that stay at a level of constantly working. And I don't know wh- whether this is the, the venues or whether this is psychological. Comics that do that for a long time, like Bobby Slayton and, you know, we all know. We could all name mm. ten of them. Um, don't seem to like it. Right. You meet... 65-year-old juggler who's been working uh, 40 years, uh, 45 years in juggling, mm-hmm. he's doing fine. Yeah, I know. That's That was my take. Like, Philip would go do a cruise ship, yeah. then he'd go play a club, and then he'd go to Caesars Tahoe, mm-hmm. get booked for a weekend, and then ultimately end up in Branson yeah. playing... Oh, maybe you know oh, this the guy. Andy the Andy Williams Theater. He opened for Andy Williams <laughs> and would go on the road with Andy Williams sure. and would explain to me 
back in the mid later eighties when I was making twelve, thirteen bucks an hour as a carpenter, he would go out with Andy for six, seven weeks, nine weeks, open for him and explain to me he got six thousand dollars a week. Yeah. And I was like, six thousand dollars a week. But when you said his name, I didn't recognize it and I know this shit. Well no one recognize that you're listening to, but he was working his whole life. Now, I got to say this. That was the goal Teller and I had. To work. Everything else is an accident. Right, a happy accident. By 1985, we were making, you know, more money than our dads did. My dad was a jail guard. Mm -hmm. His dad was a commercial artist. We're making more money than our dads. We were living very happy, and we knew all these guys that were doing cruise ships and corporate shows and little theaters. We were thrilled. And then someone said, try off Broadway, and we said, what the fuck? But, you know, if you talk to Paul McCartney, Madonna, Howard Stern, they will all tell you they were not as famous as they should have been. I bumped all of them for you today, by the way. They were all bugged. (laughs) Let's get Penn in here. Paul McCartney actually says the Beatles weren't as successful as they should have been. Really? He's actually made that sentence. He's actually said that sentence. What does he mean by that? He means that he is more ambitious than anyone you've ever seen. Yeah, and he's still going. Yeah, I mean, and, and I'm should... not. I'm no, not. No, but I was thinking, I was every is he th- 81, 82? Yeah, yeah. I was thinking the other day. Maybe, I was yeah. watching Martha Stewart on a Skechers commercial. I was like, somebody should force... Paul McCartney to have a kid with Martha Stewart. <laughs> Martha Stewart has 17 jobs. She's in her 80s. Yeah. I mean, you think of our parents. I don't know if your parents made it in their 80s, but think of our parents in their 80s. My grandparents, they were sitting around with shawls. Mm-hmm. They had blankets over their legs, and they were yeah. watching daytime well, well, TV. Well, my dad was a little different because he retired as a jail guard young, um, you know, 55, and then uh, – then worked the coin business. He was a numismatist. And what he, is that? He's a coin collector, coin mm. dealer. And so he worked rather, rather late. But uh, it is also different because uh, uh, a- age really has changed and oh health has really changed. Uh, Jane Fonda, I saw her on The View this morning, 85 years old, spry mm-hmm. and screaming into a microphone. Oh, and so the guy who I wanted to check you on was my buddy Philip ends up in Branson. Mm-hmm. He's working. He went out there with Andy Williams. Mm-hmm. He's opening for Andy Williams. Andy loves Isn't him. it great that was my first guess? Yes, it is great. <laughs> and also, like I said, when he would make $6,000 a week and explain that he did 20 minutes a night, yeah. you know, I was like, wait, you know how much you make an hour? Everything was being converted because <laughs> I was getting 13 bucks an hour. Yeah. But he went out there and hooked up with a magician called Kirby. Kirby, Kirby Birch, yeah. Kirby and said the guy was a nightmare. Yep. And and I saw I remember Philip said to me, I don't all he said to me was, um, I'm breaking off from Andy Williams and I'm doing my own thing theater, I don't know, one of the Osmond theaters or something mm-hmm. like that, and I've hooked up with a magician and his name is Kirby. And then he showed me a picture of a guy in swashbuckling captain's boots that went up past his knee, you know, that front flap that yeah, went yeah. past his knee. Where, well, he's uh, in combat. Yes, yeah, so dressed sort of like Michael Jackson in his later years with too much makeup and eyeliner, sort of doing the face of illusion with the hands flying out. 
the hair puffed up like a cockatiel, you know. And I just looked at this guy and I, I said, I don't know, Philip, this guy seems like a douchebag to me. <laughs> and he's like, hey, he's popular. He's a magician. He's a great guy. We're pairing up, you know. And then later on, I don't know if Kirby screwed him over. What happened to Kirby? Or there was allegations. Kirby. I don't know yeah. what happened. All of that happened. All of it happened. Yeah. Is he still working? Is he around? I think so. I think he's still trying to work now and again. But you bring up a very good point. Um, jugglers are maybe the only ones in show business who know how good they are. Mm-hmm. Right? Because you walk into a room, you know, there's a juggle, there's juggling conventions, and I go to them. You walk in the room, you look around, and you know exactly where you are. Precisely mm-hmm. where you are. Now, mm-hmm. with a magician, what mm-hmm. are they going to say? I'm more magic than you, right? And with a comedian, I'm funnier than you, right? It's real. I mean, we knew that Gilbert Godfrey was great. We knew, but no, but you know, I, yeah, it's it's yeah. really hard to quantify. That guy, that guy just did seven clubs with back crosses, right? I will never, right? I will never know someone well who's able to do that unless it's that guy, <laughs> right? Right. Totally That's, quantifiable. Totally. So uh, I can already tell you the personality of, of your friend Philip because I know he's a juggler. You know, mm-hmm. there's a certain kind of humility that comes with knowing precisely how good you are. Yeah. Well, so and kind this, of is, no, this is a very interesting point because first things first, I, I bring this up, but it always made me laugh. Um, great Dixieland musician, pianist, always had his band, Bob Ringwald. Uh, father to Molly Ringwald, mm-hmm. grew up up the street, blind, knew him well, said to me once, I like two things. I like jazz and I like comedy. I was like 18. I said, Bob, I love jazz. I love comedy. And he goes, he goes, yep, uh, Dixieland and Gallagher. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you had that reaction. (laughs) Greatest thing ever said. Right, because I was like, I am picturing Miles Miles Davis and Lenny Bruce and (laughs) smoke and jazz and whatever and art, you know, and he's picturing the country bear jamboree and a guy pulling shit, you know, smashing watermelons with a sledgematic. And but I, I was young. I was like I was really like seventeen. I was standing in his backyard with him and I remember thinking, Okay, so people think differently and have different in different views on stuff, I, even when I think we're thinking about the same I will the be telling thing. that story for so long that it'll become my story. I, I'll be saying I was, in the back, I was in the backyard when I was 18 <laughs> with Molly Wingwall's father, and he said, I do things, jazz and comedy. The punchline is perfect. It's you perfect. could never write that. I couldn't write it. I couldn't write it now or when I was 17 and a half. And I mean, I can't think. I can't think of another two examples. It was perfect. I, I, I can't was, think of another two examples. It was perfect. And if I'd walked away before he had spat out his yeah. two favorite forms of jazz and comedy, then I would have forever thought that Bob Ringwell and I were simpatico right, right. and our taste. Because we both like Coltrane. That's and right. We, and, we, and, we, and we both like Richard Pryor. Right. Coltrane right. and Richard Pryor, we both dig them. Right. They are fabulous. So... 
what you brought up. I mean, you should. I mean, if you wanted to put it at the same level of abstraction, you'd say Pete Fountain. Right. You know, Boots Randolph. <laughs> Boots Randolph and Gallagher. Well, so now what you brought up, which is interesting, which is when it comes to comedy, and I think people feel this way about sports to a certain degree, too, but you, you brought up juggling. Juggling, totally quantifiable. Magic, not so much. Music, not so much. Um, stand-up. You know, you go, well, who's the, you know, who do you think the best stand-up is? I don't know. I don't know. Jerry Seinfeld. All right. But on any given night, I could go out and be better than Jerry Seinfeld mm-hmm. for 15 minutes. Well, do you know, do you know, what, do you know what Steve Martin said in his book, mm-hmm. Born Standing Up? It's one of the most brilliant things ever. He said, being great is easy. Being good is really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Anybody can go out and have really good nights that are just transcendent. But just to be able to go out every single night and be good, right. that's the hard thing. But with a juggler, as you said, seven pins yeah. and around the back, it's not like a crappy or mid-level juggler could pull that off on a yeah. given night. No. You just cannot physically no. do it. No. And so it's so quantifiable. So as a magician, as a musician, as a comedian, you can say, oh, I can see this guy, this comedian. He's selling out Madison Square Garden. But I get to think to myself, I'm still funnier than that guy. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then then somehow sleep at night. You can't do that as a juggler. And and believe it. And find... Find another 20 guys that agree with you. Yes. Yeah, Adam, you are funnier. Right. But as a juggler, <laughs> you can't do that. No, you have no chance. And so like when the when you're first leading down this road, I was like, oh, Philip, you're going to say Philip was super confident because he had this skill. But, it's, but Philip was super humble because he realized there were 2,800 guys on – in, the, in North America, who could juggle better than him. And if you said to him, how good a juggler are you? He would say, I make a living. I love right. doing it. Yeah. That would be the total answer. Right. It wouldn't be like Kirby Birch with his boots going. <laughs> Kirby Birch. And I mean, that's a, that's a real different mindset. Where's Bobby Barasini? Oh, boy, well, you know, they, 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 they killed him with the backstage footage. Yeah, he had he was footage of him, sh- like, punching his orangutan. Yeah, right? spraying him and horrible stuff, tasing him. Is he alive? I don't know. I don't know. I think maybe the orangutans got him. So was Kirby Birch a good music? No. Good magician? I'm sorry. Well, you know, we all like each other. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. He wasn't even good. No. It's so, it's so funny. Philip just showed me a headshot of the guy, and he said, I'm hooking up with this guy in Branson. I said, this guy, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't no. do it. He's wearing captain's boots <laughs> and, like, Aquanet. Not we, don't, gonna... we don't need to call Patton to get the answer on this. Don't hook up with him. Right. How <laughs> did you hook up with the, uh, not sorry, with uh, Teller? Uh, just, just the way life goes, you know, I bought a, when I was in high school, I bought a stereo from a guy who was doing these weird classical musical music shows at Amherst Mm -hmm. where Teller went. And, uh, he asked me, you know, uh, I was 17 years old. He said, uh, he was doing this Bach cantata with this, uh, 
weird group he had of Amherst College alumni in the five college area, mm-hmm. Amherst, Massachusetts, called the Otmar Sheck Memorial Society for the Preservation of Unusual and Disgusting Music. Wow. It was like a PD Bach, PDQ Bach thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, you know, 17 years old. And he said, uh, Can you think you could play the bass drum part to Beethoven's fifth while juggling? I said, Yeah. Really? He said, "Just yeah." I said, "Yeah, I can learn anything. I'm good at practicing." Oh, you do the kick drum and what? Yeah, while juggling on the side. Yeah. Right. No, no, on the side, be able to bounce and do stuff like that. Oh, bounce yeah. the ball. Yeah. Or, or, or I think I hit it with a club actually. But mm-hmm. and I just said I couldn't mm-hmm. do it. Then I just said I've, you know, it was very, uh, very prescient thing to say that I think I, I try to tell my children: if you learn to practice, you can learn anything. Right. But learning to practice is difficult. Very right. few people know how to practice. Right. But I knew how to practice. I was right. good at practicing. I had that mind-numbing, I will do this for 300 hours, mm-hmm. and I'll be able to do it. He also then said, I want to do the uh, Cachetorian Saber Dance, you know, da 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 And you think you could throw plungers around me and get them to stick to a wall. I said, yeah, I think so. Turns out one of the hardest tricks I ever learned, but I learned to do it. And I went to do the show, and it was really weird because all these people were alumni of Amherst College. Mm-hmm. They were smart. They were erudite. To me, they knew everything. And I was 17, you know, failing out of high school, and they were all like 25. Mm-hmm. You know? And you know that age range yeah. is incredible. Yeah. So I went there, and then uh, there was this guy who was a Latin teacher in mm-hmm. Jersey who was teller. And he was pretending to be blind, mm-hmm. and he was selling pencils outside the uh, concert hall and reciting poetry in Latin that he'd written that was really funny if you knew Latin. Mm-hmm. That's the level of erudition of mm-hmm. the show. And I met Teller, and we chatted a little bit, and I thought he was just crazy smart. And uh, then, a year later, I was essentially homeless for a long while. And then I, a couple of years later, I was living in New York, and I had no money. I was practicing juggling eight hours a day with my partner, seven days a week. We had this little apartment in, in what was then the Lower East Village, very dangerous, Hell's Angels and everything around. And uh, we had to find one apartment with high ceilings. And we right. practiced like all day, all day, crazy. And we had no money. It was, you know, peanut butter sandwiches and powdered milk, and that's mm-hmm. all we lived on. And Teller was working as a Latin teacher. And you know, if you don't have a job, a guy who's teaching has a lot of money. Yeah. So he would call me up. I didn't like him. He'd call me up and say, I'll take you out to dinner Friday. It was mm-hmm. like, whoa. Right. You know? And uh, by the way, the story from the other side is exactly the same. Teller says, he didn't like me, but right. I bought his attention with dinner. Right. And he would take me out to dinner and we would talk. And then. I saw Teller in a library show, like in a basement, for like 35 people doing magic. And I went, Jesus, this is a different thing. This is not a guy torturing women. Right. This is not a guy full of wearing the captain's boots? No, he was not wearing captain's boots. Although he might have been wearing tights. Who knows? (laughs) But – and he – I went, whoa. And we started talking about magic, and I said, and this is not actually contradictory what I said, but it might seem it to you. Um, while I was juggling, I was also doing a lot of card tricks. When I say card tricks, I mean manipulations. I wasn't mm. 
trying to fool people. I was just going, look, I can shuffle with one hand. Right. I can do all this stuff. So we started talking about magic and Teller kind of, um, who's always been a bit of a teacher, said, you know, try reading these books and stuff like that. And I was starting to work as a juggler. And um, I, uh, I went to Ringling Brothers Barn and Bailey, greatest show on earth, Clown College. And mm-hmm. um, I actually got to be, when you're living on the streets and have no money, you can learn to juggle for tips mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And I was right. very good. And I got this job at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival, and I called up and I said, um, I said to the guy who booked me, I was the highest they'd ever paid because the guy knew I could, I could uh, get people's attention outdoors doing the show. And uh, I said, I got this magician I want to bring with me. And he said, well, I got no more money in my budget. And I said, well, if, can I just give him half of my money? And the guy went, yeah. Right. <laughs> so I called up Teller and said, you want to do a real – you've always been a Latin teacher who did magic on the side. You want to be a real magician and mm-hmm. work out at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. He said, yes, more than anything. And I said, well, we start in August. And, I, and he said, perfect. And I said, and we finish up, uh, I think it's uh, first week in October. Mm-hmm. And Teller went, oh, well, I, I start teaching then again. And I just got tenure. Was he at Amherst, did you say? No, no, he was teaching in in Jersey. Oh, okay. Because of Vietnam. But that's a whole other story. Mm -hmm. And uh, and he said, I'm supposed to be teaching that. And I just said one of the meanest things ever said to anyone. I said, oh, uh, sorry I called. I thought you were a magician, not a Latin teacher. Mm -hmm. Mm Bye-bye. And the phone rang two hours later, and he said, I won't quit. But I'll take a leave of absence, which is really funny because Teller still has the letter. Mm. And supposedly he's still on that leave of absence. (laughs) And it ties in with something else because John Stewart was a student at that class and was enrolled in Mr. Teller's Latin class for the next year. Really? And then was told he's not going to be here. He's out doing magic. Really? And then John Stewart followed Mr. Teller's career, and John Stewart has said, "All I've wanted in life is to be more famous than my teacher at Lawrence High School that left before wow. he taught me." Always at high school. Wow. So, so hmm. if you ever say to yourself, you know, John Stewart would be so much better if he had a foundation in the classics. If he knew Latin and Greek mm-hmm. and could quote the Iliad and the Odyssey, he'd be better. You can just say, I know whose fault that is. That's it's right. Teller's fault. Wow. And we talked. I mean, we still talk romantically about that drive from Jersey to Minnesota, the two of us in a Datsun 210 station wagon, which I know you could fix. Sure. And um, <laughs> A Datsun, not a Nissan, a Datsun <laughs> yeah. 210 wagon. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, that conversation, that conversation of what magic should be and could be mm-hmm. is really, and I, I, I say this without too much hyperbole, a little bit, is the foundation for what you would see on the Rio stage of Penn and Teller now. It's such a inspiring story, and it's also, it's interesting. I'm, I'm very interested in how people don't recognize qualities in other people so many people just sort of slid i mean i'd be remiss if i didn't bring up jimmy kimmel because i'm sitting in a room with his name and face all which over is the packed. place but i i met jimmy i was like oh this guy's the shit this guy's got something going on and everyone else would be like ah, i don't listen to that guy 
And I was like, how come you don't see what mm-hmm. I see in mm-hmm. this person? And they're like, hey, he's a behind-the-scenes guy. You know, he's not really. And and I'm glad people miss it because then you can find it yeah. and hit your wagon to it. But it, it's always it's always incredible to me that people that are so outstanding and, and, and so obviously outstanding can just kind of slide Pat, yeah. under everyone's radar for what seems like an extended period of time, oftentimes through many different venues. And, you know, Jimmy would bounce from one radio station to the other radio station. They'd go, ah, we don't, he doesn't really fit in around here. Just go somewhere else, you know? And, and it's like, uh, and I guess I was the same way. Of course, then when Jimmy met me, he felt the same way. He's like, why isn't anyone listening to you? And I'm like, eh, no one listens to me. And he's like, I'll listen to you. And so, and it sounds like you had that yeah, same yeah, thing exactly. with Teller. Teller and I, and I, I, I think this is so important. You know, we have uh, Tommy Smothers mm. actually said in a press release, "Now that we're not working, it's Penn and Teller." <laughs> wow, they're the longest. They're the longest. Thing. And people ask, and I always tell the them, the Smothers brothers were the longest. Yeah. Running show yeah. out here? I mean, no, 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 no. Uh, they were the longest partnership, just oh, in general. Just in general. Because yes, yes. partnerships are way out of fashion. You know, you yeah. don't have Martin and Lewis, Abbott and Costello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were all. So um, the reason is, I've always said, uh, and I've said this so many times, but um, Teller and I are not based on friendship. Mm-hmm. It's totally on respect. Mm-hmm. We both believe that we do better stuff together than we do separately. Mm. And we still prove that. Individual yeah, projects. No, agreed. And and, and, and I, I it, it's kind of up there with my adage where everyone's talking about who's nice, who's not nice. It's like forget about who's nice, who's fair, who's smart, mm-hmm. who treats people with dignity. Too much emphasis on nice. You know, we get along because he's nice and I'm nice. You, you'll get along much better, much longer if you have this base of mm-hmm. respect and you think you're not doing them a favor by going yeah. out on stage well, with well, them every know, night. You know, uh, uh, Lennon and McCartney – we're in love. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were really in love. It may, as, we, as time goes on, we may find out that it really was sexual, but I think it was. They were really deeply in love. So as soon as they weren't in love, their whole world crumbled. Mm. You know, uh, as soon as they at 28 found that, you know, maybe we want to marry women, mm-hmm. you know, uh, things crumbled. Teller and I have always been like two guys running a dry cleaning shop. Mm-hmm. And... People will tell you uh, there are many times of working together where we are clearly not getting along. Mm-hmm. We're not mean to each other. We're not disrespectful. But we're like two guys working to 7-Eleven. We're just getting through it. And, you know, it's clear that after, you know, almost 50 years, uh, at, at, by any measurement, Teller's my best friend. He was the first one to hold my children after my wife and I, you know, all that stuff. Uh, but... Our relationship is essentially complete respect business partners, and that's so much more powerful. I mean, if you talk to me about how much you want to go out and laugh with Teller after a show and have a good time, I might tell you, eh, don't fucking bother. But if you want to tell me who is the best person at thinking about this structure of a trick or a joke, I'll say you're not going to ever find better than Teller. And I, I believe that same thing is, is reciprocal. All right. We'll take a break, and we really will get to a little news right after this. And Gillette hanging out backstage at the Jim 
Jimmy Kimmel's Comedy Club. How full is it? How full is it? It's packed in this yeah. room. Uh, Chris has got a little hey news guys. for us. Yeah. So actually, since uh, since we're in Vegas, I wanted to do some local news. And uh, Siegfried and Roy's former estate yeah. has just been sold for uh, the full $3 million asking price. It's called Jungle Palace. But it wasn't sold to uh, Murray, right? Murray Sawchuck? No, it's uh, Brett Carden. Right, because Murray Sawchuck, who's a magician here in town, um, got some press a few days ago by, I'm touring the Siegfried and Roy house and considering buying it, which I guess is a very good move. But uh, Teller just wrote me an email going, maybe we should buy it just for a joke. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know... Uh, Make Kirby live there. <laughs> that would be awesome. Well, they've already got the boots. That's right. You know, they're, they they're in the, the closet. Boots. They're in That's the closet. Right. Well, they were for a while, yeah. <laughs> Those boots. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so here's a question with that kind of stuff. I, I think the uh, Playboy Mansion sold several years ago. Homeby Hills, I don't know, $100 million or something like that. Anyone who's ever been to the Playboy Mansion. It's sort of like seeing the original Batmobile. You mm-hmm. go, oh, come on. Yeah. It's a piece of shit, you know. Yeah. And there's electric tape on the steering wheel and stuff like that, electrical tape and stuff. And it's like, yeah, that's what the Playboy Mansion was. Yeah. But yeah. then the question is, is do there's you the keep grotto. it? There's the grotto. There's the grotto there made of paper mache. Do you keep it as a sort of time capsule? I mean, Homeby Hills, some of the most expensive real estate on the planet, or do you develop it and get rid of it? Like, what do you do? What do you do with Siegfried and Roy's house? Right. What do you do with the Sharon Tate house? <laughs> oh, well, they bulldoze that shit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Brett thought that somebody was going to tear the, buy the property and tear it down. So he purchased it and, um, and they thought, okay, maybe we'll make this a tourist attraction or a short term vacation rental. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they want to keep, at, the, at this point, they yeah, want to keep they, it the way they, it is. That is a more reasonable, uh, more reasonable desire than the than the Playboy Mansion because it's in a bad neighborhood. The real estate's not worth anything. It is in a bad neighborhood. Yeah, it wasn't when they built it. Right. You know, same as the Liberace place. You know, the museum or his house. Uh, both. They're the same. You know, the museum was over in a strip mall, but right. the house was also a museum. And the thing is that we know you have talked to smart twenty five year olds really smart 25-year-olds, and ask them who Richard Pryor is. Right. And ask them who Johnny Carson is. Oh, I just had a guess. She wasn't 25, I don't know, 32 or something. I had no idea who. No, because... So that's Siegfried and Roy are important to our culture for another three and a half minutes. Right. Yeah. Sad. But it's... Not really sad. It's the way life should go because there has to be other... Like, you know... I get crazy about this. My friends talk about their children. They say, oh, you know, my children like the same music that I do. But I say, you're a shitty parent. You know, (laughs) when I get in the car with my children, they play the music. When we watch TV together, we watch the stuff that they like. You know, I'm not a guy that, that would watch Always Sunny in Philadelphia. My son loves to watch it. He loves to watch Inside Job, you know, the cartoon that... That is goofy, and I enjoy it. It's really good, but I'm not saying, oh, no, 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 no. Man, you got to see Dawn of the Dead. He wants to see Cocaine Bear. You know, that's where I'm going tomorrow is to see Cocaine Bear. We're not going to sit home and watch Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So it's perfect. I mean, Penn and Teller need to be forgotten because there's other stuff coming down the pike. Done and done. (laughs) But what I'm I'm kind of saying is, is 
maybe speaking of juggling, kind of do both. Like, keep up, know what's going on, know who Wiz Khalifa is, but also know who Three Dog Night yeah, is. Yeah. And and we had a kind of emphasis on wanting to know about the past when we were younger. Mm-hmm. That emphasis is gone now. Yeah. And the number one answer for young people when you ask, well, you don't know who Johnny Carson is? Like, I wasn't even born when he was like, yeah. I know, Shakespeare. You weren't right, born with fucking right. Shakespeare. You weren't born with Bach. You right. weren't even born with John Coltrane, right. Miles Davis, right. Richard Pryor. Right. Learn everything. Mm. Learn. I mean, I, uh, you know Firesign Theater. Yes. Well, Firesign Theater, Phil Proctor, um, they did a thing called Proctor and Bergman. And I was 18. I was hitchhiking around the country following Proctor and Bergman. Mm-hmm. I would go to the, and I did this performance art thing where I would show up at the club. You know, they were selling only okay in mm-hmm. small clubs. I would show up at eight o'clock in the morning with my friend waiting to buy tickets when the tickets office opened. And you know, they come in for sound check at four in the afternoon. And Phil Proctor says, What are you doing here? And I said, Well, I just read in the paper that people were lining up for the Stones, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 10 hours before the show. And I, I like you more than the Stones. Mm-hmm. So I'm waiting here. It's a sign of respect. Wow. And I said, you know, he said, what do you do? I said, it's a performance art thing. My friend and I want to stand here to show we would wait in line to see you. Mm-hmm. And he said, what do you do? And I said, I'm a juggler. I want to do more stuff in comedy. And, and uh, Phil Proctor said, I said, what's your advice? He said, my advice, know everything. Mm-hmm. He said, for comedy, don't worry about comedy or timing or anything. Know everything. Learn Russian. Know the specs on the space station. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Learn to fix a car. Learn everything. Yeah. And then you'll be funny. So it's the, the punchline to pay off. So we were on Broadway, mm-hmm. uh, you know, many years later, whatever that would be, 20, 25 years later. And Phil Proctor comes to the show and he comes mm-hmm. backstage. And I said, you know, Phil, I don't know if you remember me, but I met you in Chicago and you gave me advice on show business. And he said... I said, he said, I don't think I do. I said, really long hair, uh, eye makeup, juggler. He was, you're that, you're that guy, vaguely kind, and maybe he's lying. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I said, you gave me advice in show business that really helped me. He said, what did I say? Now, remember, you're on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Think back and tell me precisely what I said because I could use the help. <laughs> and I said, you told me, learn everything. And he said, fucking useless. <laughs> but um, but that, that kind of thing, when people say, you know, you cannot, anyone who talks about music, plus or minus three years of their first blowjob, mm-hmm. you throw out everything they say. Mm. Everything they say in those six years, mm. we don't care about because that's nostalgia. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about important music to us, when you're talking about what you think of different musical forms, as soon as I do the math in my head that that's those three, and you start saying, well, you know, Rat was one of the greatest bands ever, yeah. I kind of go, oh, that's that's in your window. My blowjob window. I'm not listening to you at all. No, it's 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 very. But when you start saying, well, you know, I was listening to uh, uh, Kind of Blue, the, listen to the Miles Davis thing, and I go, okay, now we're talking. I or, completely, I've, yeah. yeah. No, I've said this many times as it pertains to movies because mm-hmm. I always say you'll talk to someone, especially 
someone who's younger. And then don't say Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. It was like the funniest movie ever made, you know. And then I go, that movie came out in 87 and you were born in 77. Oh, you were 14. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh. Well, this yeah, explains that's, Star uh, I, don't, I don't say blowjob, but that's yeah. sort of, it's in the pre But you have said the era. words blowjob. Yes, I've definitely put those two words together. But <laughs> yes, people need... To know the difference between nostalgia mm-hmm. and well, quality. There's nothing wrong with there's it. There's nothing wrong with nothing it, but let's not it mistake it for quality. Right, exactly. Right. If right. I want to listen to Incense and Peppermints, right. I, Strawberry and I say, clock. I really, really, this means a lot to me, you say, okay, but we're not going to talk about it. No, it, it's, it's basically like saying this tuna casserole that my mom used to make with hamburger helper is the best cuisine ever it's right. like no it brings back memories of before your parents were divorced right <laughs> all right sorry chris yeah. go ahead all right i also want to get penn's thoughts on the upcoming f1 race that's coming to town oh. so it's coming in november it's the most highly anticipated f1 race ever mm-hmm. it's going to be at 10 p.m so we get all the lights for the sh- from the strip well not only do you get the lights but those cars frequently bottom out and sh- Spray sparks out of the back, so at night it's just that much more dramatic. Right. So th- yeah, this is, this is obviously a huge deal. Street um, course, standing right. room only tickets are going for five hundred dollars right now. Wow. Yeah, and uh, and like other tickets, of course, you know twenty five hundred if if you want to be near the new MSG Sphere and things like that because it's going through the whole town. And yeah, the the town is just this whole city is just prepping for this huge event. First time ever, it's going to be in Vegas. Remember what I said about Phil Proctor saying know everything? Yeah. I don't. Uh-huh. Uh, my wife the other day at, uh, at uh, supper said to me and my children, you know, this big race is coming to town. We have to learn about racing and get into it. This is a good opportunity for us. She tanked with that. It did not go over well at supper. We all went, we, we don't know racing. Uh, yeah, no no Nissan Leafs rolling through the, uh, the streets. <laughs> With, so uh, are you, are you going to be here for that? Are you excited uh, about that? I'm excited about it. I don't know if I'll be here. I'll try to well, figure it out. Well, explain to me what F1 racing is. F1 racing is just the top of the food chain for any automotive racing and it is technologically sort of leaps and bounds uh, above whatever whatever there is and there's probably a lot of innovation probably came out of f1 like you know like like no lock breaking and stuff you know there's lots of innovation that starts in f1 and makes its way to you know you know the 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 fords and the nissans and everything like that um it's really just saying there is no faster way a human being could get around this circuit other than being in this vehicle. And there's no faster drivers on the planet because that it ends up being, if you are the fastest person on the planet, you probably don't end up in NASCAR. You probably end up in, or in Indy, you probably end up in, in F1. And it's just sort of knowing that these 20 guys are the best, 20 on the planet and these cars are the most advanced cars on the planet it, it, I don't I don't know if people articulate it that way but I think that's that's what it is that's the attraction it's it's the meritocracy you know, you're, of the, it. you're the one who explained to me in terms of cars the Houdini wand or the um, uh, Odessa's ship 
when I asked you, would you keep changing parts in a car, what makes it the car? Because, you know, I've got this wand that belonged to Houdini. I changed both the tips and I changed the piece of wood in the center, but this belonged to him or the or the ship of – I think it was – I think it was uh, – uh, Odessa's or something. But um, you said that on Paul Newman's, was it a Porsche that he raced? I was. It, I don't think it was a Porsche I was talking about it. But I remember we were in a van and we were doing Celebrity Apprentice. Mm-hmm. And I think we were driving around somewhere. And you said, well, what is it with these race cars? Because they blow up the engine, they replace the engine, then they get crashed and they replace the bodywork <laughs> and they replace the transmission and stuff like that. So you did the Houdini's Except one. Except I wouldn't have known the word transmission, but okay. <laughs> Example. <laughs> You said, yeah. you said, do you still own Houdini's wand if you've done the tips and you've done the shaft yeah. that's all been swapped out? And I just said, you do if someone else doesn't claim to own Houdini's right, right. wand, yeah, yeah. then you still have Houdini's wand. But I'm glad I'm, I'm glad I'm learning this about – so should I force my family to go and watch this? I think, you know, it's a spectacle, I think, and I think you like spectacles. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mean exclusively, but I mean, it's like I, I went to the Indianapolis 500 several years ago, and I was like, oh, my God, this is a spectacle. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So it's not – all about the But they're going to race, like, right down Las Vegas Boulevard? Yeah. yeah. Isn't that dangerous with all people walking across the street? Uh, that, yeah. cars? We should, we should definitely bring that up. Flyers to strip clubs and stuff <laughs> yeah. like that. You're right. All right. Let's do one more. All right. Well, uh, Robert Blake just died. Yeah. Mm. Beretta. Yeah. I didn't Beretta hear that. Cold Blood. Yeah. yeah the... Uh, the 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 great yet controversial and actor. And it's also possible he got away with murdering. That is that's the whole that's the whole point, right? I mean, right. But nobody, a lot of it was nobody felt sorry for the woman he murdered. Yeah, because that's, that's she it. turned out to have a little bit a of a dicey of, past. That's right. Yeah, I don't think you'd even need the word "little bit." No, a maximum amount of diciness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, he, he his alibi was the nuttiest alibi yeah. ever. I was going in to get a gun. Yes. Yeah, and then when I came back, she yeah, was shot. That was, that was Vitello's, I think. Yeah, it, it was. was. across the street from the Two Roads yeah. Theater where I started, and we'd hang out at yeah. Vitello's before the show. So I knew it well. I knew where he lived and everything. I remember interviewing Robert Blake on Loveline, I got to say 1998 or something like that, and he it, he struck me as one of the most dour, depressed guys in the world well you, you heard what he said in an interview just two years ago i was born entirely alone i yes. lived entirely alone i'm gonna die entirely alone we that is not a hallmark card <laughs> we no we were in culver city at the time at uh, westwood one and there was this weird hotel that was just sort of across the parking lot and he said i i lived in that hotel when i was like nine and he was a child star, I guess. Yeah, but our I guess gang. His, his, his yeah, his parents were poor or abusive or he was whatever. D- dancing on the street when he was two or three for. Tips. I, I mean, he he grew up in a sort of poverty and a kind of a generation and a kind of you could do whatever you wanted with kids kind of era that just doesn't exist anymore. It somehow got seared into him, and he. I just remember thinking, this is the saddest soul I've ever really spoken to. It was wow. just oozing out of him. And did you like Beretta? 
I watched Beretta. I it love was Beretta. I, every every I watched every cop show when I was a kid. He had a cockatiel, I think. Yeah, bird named Fred. Fred. Yeah, and that was enough that he hated when, when I was that he uh, when I was the right hated. age. And uh, he would, you know, he had his little catchphrases. You can take that to the bank. And the other one, uh, all the tough guys I know are in the jailhouse or the graveyard. Right. And don't do the crime if, if you can't, can't do the time. Was that Sammy Davis, Davis Jr.? Was he was saying that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. So what is he? Did he make it to 90? 89. 89. So, no, he didn't. But, yeah, I mean, and you're right. So, But, you know, uh, there's some mileage on Robert Blake. I mean, drugs and so on. I'm always amazed that people with that incredible – well, you know, the obvious example, of course, is Keith Richards. But, um, right. but it's amazing that Robert Blake would live that long. I, I agree. Yeah, especially – and, yeah, everyone did say he was very depressed. He was a miserable human being. <laughs> yes, he was. And I guess he grew up in L.A. I, I mean, no, during no, he was, a crazy... he's from New York. Oh, he's from New York. And then he moved out because his dad thought there might be a buck in movies for him. Oh, as a young child. Yeah. Spanky and our gang? Or... Yeah, yeah, our gang. Yeah, our, our gang. gang. Yeah. He, I mean, he was there with Alfalfa. Yeah. And, uh, oh, which is, oh, just to make it clear, I'm too old for that stuff. But like I know about Bach, I also know right. about our gang. Yeah. yeah. And the, the night he was acquitted, they all went to Vitello's and partied. Really? Yeah. Wow. He must have hated that woman. <laughs> Jesus, it's so, I, I don't know. It's so sad when someone just, I mean, he had to be thinking shortly before he died. Like, really? This is it? You just go through life just miserable and dour. And, and I, I get it. These are all scars that he carries from his youth, but it, at a certain point, man, turn the page. Yeah, there, there, are, there are other there are other people that have had horrendous. Yeah, horrendous yes, childhoods that's true. that don't come off that way. And there's other people that were absolutely as bitter as um, Robert Blake, who had wonderful childhoods. One of the most disturbing things ever is uh, it's good that I can't remember the name. It's actually wonderful. I can't remember the name. Kirby, but the but the, uh, the shooters, uh, the kind of the school shooter inventors um, in the, in the 90s in uh, in uh, uh, Colorado. Yeah. Uh, Dylan, whatever his name was. Klebold? Uh, Klebold, yeah. Dylan Klebold. And his, I don't want to remind him. And his partner, yeah. Um, they did extensive research, extensive research with the parents mm-hmm. of them. Uh, parents are kind of perfect. Mm. They saw all the warning signs. They tried to get help. Every piece of advice you could ever get about how not to turn out a, a school shooter, they followed. Mm. You know, and that's that is the horror, the absolute horror. You know, it used to be with um, with uh, uh, anomalies, horrible anomalies. We blamed like you know this this kid's head's blowing up because his mother was scared by an elephant when she was pregnant or we used to blame witches and yeah. now we're in the period of time where we, we do blame the parents. It's always the parents' yeah. fault and that may be just as superstitious as what we did before because you know there's that I don't like Mondays by the Boomtown Rats. The silicone chip inside his head switched off to overload. Yeah, which may be all of it. You know, that was the uh, so that's kid shot up a school, and they said, "Why'd you do it?" And he said, "I don't like Mondays." Yeah, right. And so, uh, and uh, I think that we it's our grasping 
at answers that tries to say that Robert Blake was a miserable prick because he had this horrible upbringing. Which Worst he- eulogy ever. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a stirring tribute. Started pen. off with I love Beretta. We're going down the right road. No, well, I, I think you know what, what I mean. What, no, I'm not saying is, exclusively. But what it is is we try to make sense of things because mm-hmm. when horrible things happen, we try to make sense of them. Like when an airline airliner crashes and they go, oh, well, the screw jack that operated the tail <laughs> that didn't work. We then go, okay, they figured it out. Right. And they just went, it just crashed because it crashed. It's, now we're scared it shitless. It fell out of the it sky. It just fell out of the sky. We're scared shitless yeah. to get on an airplane. Mm-hmm. And when a kid just does something horrible, we search desperately for motivation. We, we also yeah. do that. Because I mean, we want to control it. The simple one is the rape one. You know, right. She was wearing a short skirt. Right. And she was a little she looked a little bit slutty on the street. We're only saying that so we have a reason. You should be able to walk down the street absolutely butt ass naked with porno stapled to your ass and people should rape you because they don't rape. Right. You know, it was that great I mean Chris Rock first of all, if you're going to slap someone publicly Mm-hmm. Do not pick one of the most articulate <laughs> yeah, with people a microphone. we, we yeah. have alive. You went to the microphone. homeless like I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this guy's a big microphone yeah. and a big audience. And you know what he ended up saying mm. when he said, why didn't you hit him back? Oh, he said his parents yeah. raised him, right? Well, so yeah. the parents do make yeah. a difference. Yeah. We tied it all together. All right. Well, let's bring it home. Let me give uh, Penn a nice plug here. TV series Penn and Teller Fool Us is uh, season 10. It should be. Uh, 10 seasons just got picked up on the CW and then uh, the game, You Lying Sack, that's available at Walmart. And, and don't forget as well. my novel, Random. Oh, your novel, I wrote Random. A random. Yeah, I wrote a novel called Random. Available where you find finer books. And then, of course, uh, The Rio, the yeah. live show. That's uh, tickets at Penn and Teller. Dot com. Well, I always look forward to talking to you, my what friend. I always pleasure. know how easy it is on me to come in here and let you do all the heavy lifting. So, what a pleasure. Uh, Just an absolute pleasure. Great Robert Blake, we did love Beretta. Okay? We did love him. And go. you can take that to the bank. And until next time, it's Adam Kroll for Penn Gillette saying, Mahalo. Make sure you get a copy of Adam's latest book, Everything Reminds Me of Something. It's available where finer books are sold. Leave us a voicemail at 888 888- Six three four one seven four four, and get your tickets to see the Ace Man at AdamCarolla.com.